Good morning, everybody, and thanks for joining me today for another episode of the NHS 100K podcast with me, Matt Taylor. And I've got a lovely guest on today that I've been itching to speak to for a little while. I've got Dr. Alzim Malhotra, who is a consultant cardiologist with me, paraphrasing. Um, he's, he's, he's done so much stuff. You've probably might have seen him about recently doing uh, quite a few interviews. So I'm glad he's here. I've had to wait a long time to speak to you. So thank you for coming on to the show. How are you doing today, Doctor? All right? It's a pleasure, Matt. Delighted to, to be on the show. It's a bit of a hot Sunday, but it's fine. I got the fan on, so yes. all good. <laughs> it's sticky, isn't it? We're, 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 us British, we're like, oh, we want hot weather. Then as soon as it comes, we're like, no, we don't. Just, just, it's too hot. It's too hot. We're uh, so difficult to please when it comes to the weather. So, right, just uh, give me a brief background of 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 you, please, Doctor, just for those yeah, people. Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I qualified as a doctor in 2001. Uh, Edinburgh Medical School. Uh, I then subspecialized within into cardiology. Uh, that was uh, that's what I've really been focusing and practicing uh, very specifically on for well over a decade. And uh, within cardiology, my initial training, although I'm a, a general cardiologist and manage all sorts of uh, conditions related to the heart, I initially subspecialized in my training to become an interventional cardiologist. So that is, in layman's terms, keyhole heart surgery. And um, over the past, I would say, 12 years, 11, 12 years, I've become also known as someone, uh, as a campaigner on issues related to obesity, on improving better transparency in medicine, um, uh, improving population health, uh, essentially an activist. But as well as being a car clinical cardiologist, uh, my other roles do include, you know, um, influencing health policy, uh, lecturing, teaching. Uh, I'm a writer, published three um, books, so I do quite a lot of different things. But um, ultimately, for me, Matt, the primary motivation behind all my work is to improve the quality of care for patients and to improve public health. That's brilliant. And I, I like so we're allowed to talk about obesity then, because it seems to be a, a, a subject that <laughs> it brings quite a lot of controversy to it, doesn't it? It's, uh, we promote health, but then we can't talk about people being a bit too fat. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's interesting. We'll come back to that, um, shortly because I've got loads of things sure. to absolutely. Do this yeah. So just to give people, so I first came across yourself when you had, um, I don't want to say too much cause it's, it's good for you to just describe what happened, but you had a bit of a delay when your father was really poorly. Can you tell the people just briefly about that? Yeah, sure, mate. So, um, yeah, that was really quite a harrowing experience for me. Um, and I think anyone reading the story would find it quite, um, uh, you know, quite difficult, really, to to get their head around. But essentially, my dad suffered um, uh, a cardiac arrest last July. In fact, it's coming up to about a year uh, since the anniversary of his passing. And um, it was a witness cardiac arrest. I was on the phone down the line in London. He was in Manchester. And the people that witnessed it were actually both qualified doctors, both consultants in, in the local teaching hospital. And normally in these situations, something I've published on and and uh, researched as well is that in this country and you know actually probably matt as a, a background as a paramedic normal response time for cardiac arrest has been excellent for many many years usually mm -hmm. within eight to ten minutes in different parts of the country you know you'll get more than 90 percent of people having a response for a cardiac arrest within that time and that's important and that's crucial because the the response time is uh, absolutely correlated with the chances of people surviving and being successfully defibrillated especially if it's witnessed which in my dad's case it was but unfortunately uh, and at the time it was perplexing to why this happened 
Um, it took about 30 to 35 minutes for the ambulance to arrive. And by the time they attached the, uh, the cardiac monitor, there was nothing to shock uh, Matt. It was asystole, it was a flat line, mm. as opposed to what we call ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, which are rhythms that you can shock more, you know, more times than not back into a normal rhythm and, and save patients. So, um, and then I, I did my own investigation to try and find out what happened uh, and involved a, a very good journalist actually with the eye newspaper called Paul Gallagher. He's a health editor of the eye, he's brilliant. And he also investigated this with me. And what we found out was initially there was a, a, an attempt at a, if you like, I don't wanna use this word, but in, in essence, it was a cover up, an attempted cover up around mistakes that were made uh, by what was actually a private provider, interestingly, in the end, that made the mistake in terms of the dispatch of the ambulance. Um, we can talk a bit a little about that, a little bit about that later, about the, the the lack of the less quality you get when you have private provision within the NHS. Um, so there's human error involved, but also it exposed the fact that the ambulance delays um, had been present apparently for several weeks in most regions throughout the country. And both NHS England and the Department of Health had deliberately made a decision not to tell doctors and the public about it. And that's crucial because it would have changed his outcome. I wouldn't have asked him to call an ambulance and wait for an ambulance. We would have just gotten to the local hospital. Someone would have driven him there. And by the time he had a cardiac arrest in terms of when he had the chest pain initially, he called me about having suffering from chest pain. Uh, it's very likely he would have been witnessed and a defibrillator would have been nearby and he would have been shocked out of it and he would have been alive. So I wrote about that and that's because uh, somebody very senior within NHS England, a nurse that knew my dad very well, told me that this, you know, she was on, in tears when, when she found out my dad had died and said that we knew about this problem for several weeks. But it, there was a decision made, I don't know whether it was Sajid Javid at the time or, uh, or a joint decision with NHS England to not publicly tell um, the public about it. Once my, uh, I wrote an article that was published in the eye became a news story and then it was on GB News and then BBC came to interview me, became a BBC headline story. So my story about my dad actually kicked off everything we're hearing now of all these ambulance delays was actually triggered by my dad's cardiac arrest. Yeah, and it it's it's interesting because <clears throat> there's ambulance delays all the time, unfortunately, but um, usually, like you say, the, the, the cardiac arrests, they, they still get a decent response. Um, Absolutely. For me, that was a, the first marker that, you know, we've talked about, I mean, for years I've, I've campaigned on trying to save the NHS from being broken, but actually that was a symptom what happened with my dad. And that's now been replicated throughout the country. You see this happening all over now. Um, the NHS isn't a breaking point anymore, Matt. It's completely and totally broken. So we have to accept that. We start with it. It's broken. We talk about how we got there, but now we need to rebuild it. Yeah. And do you think they'll be able to rebuild it on the existing foundations? Because I know there's some some organisations are out there trying to sort of not and very nobly reinvent the wheel. Uh, and I don't think they can kind of grasp just how big the NHS as an entity really is. Um, what what do you think is going to, I mean, this is a bit of a massive question, but at the beginning, what, what do you think it is that we need to do potentially to try and help re rejig the NHS or revive it, would we say? Excuse well, first of all, I would say, Matt, that, um, and this is something I've, um, campaigned on, I've researched in detail for many, many years because my primary motivation, I mean, most of my clinical career, almost all of it has been in the NHS. The last couple of years, um, I was on sabbatical, I was writing books and I'm, I'm looking to get back in the NHS. My clinical practice is, is purely in the uh, private at the moment. Um, it's important to mention that. Um, not a typical private practice doctor though, we can talk about that later. 
but um because people come to me and actually save money because they don't order an unnecessary test they have a conversation and often they want lifestyle changes and they come off their pills which is actually what i do with my patients both within the nhs and what i do now essentially is how i feel we could manage the nhs better so to reform the nhs in the way that we want it to be reformed based upon the original principles of the founding of the nhs map by Andrew bevan he said it's a national health service not purely um, to allow free uh, at the point of access and delivery for everybody. But the main function, the NHS was founded on the principle of universalizing the best health care for everybody. So that's what we should be focusing on. So, okay, so how have we got, how's that gone wrong? There's lots of factors involved. In recent, in the last sort of 10 to 20 years, certainly our failure to tackle prevention without resources matching that. So we've, we've got a shortage, for example, of about 100,000 NHS staff which we've had for many, many years, whilst we've got increasing demand. So you can imagine how that's going to be a problem. And that on the background, Matt, of uh, also acknowledging that, and it's still the case, we have certainly for the last couple of decades, I would say, um, in the UK, we have always had the least number of doctors per capita population than anywhere in the rest of Europe. So we were already, if you, if you like, a bit more stretched to start with. Now we've, we've you know, significantly overstretched so that we have to understand that with a population by the way which is one of the most unhealthy in europe as well so you know it's a double whammy so you've got that situation then you've got to understand well what's happening within the nhs so if, if we forget about prevention for a second about most people's health are determined by as you know by factors which happen outside the hospital grounds within the hospital grounds itself there is a, a big problem of um waste so the Academy of Medical Colleges published a report a few years ago. I was involved in a, in a link report with them that we were, you know, uh, wasting um, uh, approximately two, at least two point four billion pounds in the NHS on uh, interventions, treatments, tests, surgeries that were unnecessary. So we've got a huge element there. And then it, one doctor's waste. The concept that the medical colleges put forward is, if you think about that, one doctor's waste is an, another patient's delay. So let's say, for example within cardiology i'll give you an example i remember working as a registrar in one of the teaching hospitals before I became a consultant and i knew at that time the evidence had emerged that one of the things that we were using to manage cardiac patients who were quite sick is something called an intraortic balloon pump and um you know uh these are very expensive um devices and the evidence had emerged well before we in fact they're still being used but you know they're being phased out slowly that they were basically of no benefit for the purposes that they were being used for. But they were very resource intensive. So if you've got one in, if you're a patient who's suffered a severe heart attack and you're in what we call cardiogenic shock, uh, the worst form of heart attack, which affects the heart muscles, pump functionality, nurses and doctors would be spending hours managing that patient with repeat blood tests, checking um, whether they uh, their clotting factors were normal because they have, they have to be within a certain range for the balloon pump to to not clot off, there's all the, and then you've got complications. So you think about that in a busy hospital and you are spending a lot of time on a, on a utilizing a device that doesn't really have any benefit. And then there are patients waiting in A&E that haven't been seen by the cardiology registrar because he's too busy looking after the balloon pump. Can you imagine that's, you know, it, these, this is just the tip of the iceberg, Matt. Yeah. So reforming the NHS actually is just as much about actually doing what using the evidence that we have in a better way um as much as you know making sure we've got enough resources in terms of staff so i would argue that really you don't you could actually improve quality of care massively 
by reducing waste uh, on its own. You could actually improve quality care. So you're reducing costs and you're improving quality care simultaneously. We could do that very, very quickly if the evidence was translated into, the scientific evidence was translated into, into policy. Um, but the, one of the problems we've had in the NHS for a long time is something called payment by uh, results, which is essentially payment by activity. So hospitals are paid by the amount of procedures sometimes they do. And I remember one, another hospital, to give you an example, the group of cardiologists when I was working in interventional cardiology got together and decided that instead of automatically putting heart stents in little scaffolds into every patient that has an angiogram and is found to have a blockage, when those patients are stable or they've maybe suffered a minor heart attack, we should actually stop, have a, a meeting about um, whether what the best management plan is with a number of cardiologists to talk through it rationally. And what happened in that situation, Matt, is in general, what would happen is most of those doctors together would say, actually, this patient doesn't need the stent, can be managed with tablets and we discharge them. And actually, that would reduce the amount of time spent in the operating theater, et cetera, in a, in a, in a way that's beneficial for the patient, by the way. Yeah. And what happened, uh, you know, several months later, and I won't name this hospital because this could be any hospital, the chief executive called the head of the Department of Cardiology and said, oh, hold on a minute. We've noticed you're doing less procedures. You know, you need to maybe, maybe think about upping your game a little bit. And I remember as a registrar being sent by the consultant in a way to look for patients throughout the hospital who weren't on the cardiology ward that we could justify needed an angiogram. You know, uh, uh, so can you imagine that scenario that's been created? It's, it's a huge bias. It's a huge conflict. But the default is to treat, 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 often with procedures and medications. We talk about medications as well that patients don't necessarily need. And at the very least, there's no informed consent going on quite often about the absolute benefits of a procedure or a surgery or a test or a drug, which when you know data reveals, Matt, that when you have proper informed consent discussions with patients, most patients decide, themselves decide to be more conservative in the sense that they decide they're much less likely to choose an operation, they're less likely to take a pill. So, you know, this this could be very easily resolved um, quite quickly in terms of improving quality care in the NHS just by practicing what I would say real evidence based medicine. And prevention, education of the public. I, I've always said the lifestyle changes that are required. It's it's a complete paradigm shift, isn't it, in our the, the thought process of how we look at health and lifestyle, because a lot of people aren't really given any information on how to be healthy. They just think you just got to, you know, eat right or eat less or you know, it's a it's a lifestyle, I think, being healthy. And then usually if you, you know, look after yourself enough, you don't then need the medications or the procedures later on in life because you've been, yeah. been looking after yourself. That's, that's, and then that's a good point, Matt. So two things attached to that. One is um, education is absolutely imperative. It's really important to educate people. The problem we've got is around the education is one, a lot of the so-called education is misinformation. So it's education that's fueled by, say, the pharmaceutical industry or the food industry, uh, food industry, right? And therefore, people get the wrong information. They think they're making informed choices when they're actually not. They're actually making choices that ultimately are beneficial to big industries, not to themselves. Then you've got to understand that a lot of what drives people's health behaviors now is structurally driven. So the conditions in which we uh, live, grow, work. So, for example, we know from behavioral science, most of what influences people's health decisions is environmentally driven. So if you've got a food environment that's predominantly ultra-processed unhealthy foods, the default choice, it doesn't mean you can't do it, but it's much harder for people to make healthier choices. 
Um, so that's one aspect. And we know from tobacco control, for example, the biggest impact on reducing tobacco consumption in the population, which was about, you know, half of the adult population in the UK was smoking in 1970. It's crazy when you think about it now. And it's got reduced. It's not perfect, but it's way better. It's about 17% now. And when we look at the science around what was the biggest driver for that reduction, education campaign was important. But the biggest driver, interestingly, Matt, was the taxation of cigarettes. So what happens is you increase the price, you reduce the effective availability, and that has a twofold effect. One is if you increase the price economically, you're going to get less people buying cigarettes. But also it, it kind of reinforces a message that there's a problem, cigarettes are harmful. So mm. that together is actually what reduced consumption. And I would argue that education alone is not going to be enough to reverse obesity because, again, if the drivers are ultra-processed food, especially if they're cheap, and let's just say, for example, you're on minimum wage or even less than minimum wage, a lot of those people, it's it's much harder to afford healthy food. So they go for the, the cheap junk food, not knowing as well that this is a big driver of, of chronic disease further down the line. So there's a lot that we need to do, actually, to combat this. Um, but I think the, the point I'm saying is education is important, the right education, but unbiased, clear, transparent, non-industry corrupted education combined with those structural changes. So again, talk about things about, um, we talk about um, affordability. Many people in this country are in jobs, you know, zero hours contract jobs or whatever else. We have to think about, well, at least people, I believe, can have a debate about this, everybody should be in a job where they are paid enough to allow them, Matt, to at least have lead a basic healthy life. And if you're not paid enough to do that, this conversation about personal responsibility and individual choice is just nonsense. It's insulting, actually. It's insulting to those people, I think. Mm. Yeah. Do you think what, what I mean, it's an open it's quite an open ended question. But why do you think it, there is such a heavy, uh, 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 such a what? Well, what's what I'm looking for? Why do you think it's so weighted towards us being unhealthy, if that makes sense? As in, why have we got? so unhealthy you mean or yeah well so yeah so why do we think there's such a so the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry why are they so kind of hell-bent on us not really being healthy i mean obviously well, it's I, so it's interesting i don't think that they they directly are you know i don't think there's a deliberate kind of attempt from their end to make us unhealthy but the way they make money and their highest profit margins comes from cheap ultra processed refined carbohydrate type foods that's one thing right so that's where they have the highest profit margin margin and then what they do is they uh, they engineer these foods to become hyperpalatable. There's a huge air, growing area of research around food addiction. So imagine a, a food that for many people becomes addictive. And then you could actually make the case that addiction is the opposite of free will. So people get hooked onto these foods. Then you've got this issue about it interfering with appetite control mechanisms. And then you see this all happening really since the 1980s where we've had this obesity epidemic. Some of it also is uh, unfortunately driven by flawed science saying that low fat foods and lowering cholesterol through food is a way forward to re reverse or reduce heart disease burden and actually a lot of what replaced low fat were foods that were even worse for your health i mean fat itself isn't in general terms that's another discussion but um so you've got that co combination and then you create this um public health disaster just from flawed dietary guidelines combined with it being exploited by the food industry whose their, their primary purpose, Matt, isn't to look after your health, it's to make profit. That's their legal obligation. So one has to go into the roots of actually understanding, well, hold on a minute, um, is it right? Are we happy for corporations, big corporations with so much power to make money by marketing unhealthy products, often 
um, under the false pretense that the so-called unhealthy products are actually healthier than they are, or even healthy, low-fat foods being healthy, et cetera. So you've got all of that to throw into the equation as well. And I think that, in a way, explains the problem with the obesity epidemic. Now, you've then got to add in, okay, what are the pharmaceutical industry? Exactly the same thing. They are primary there, you know, their their um, modus operandi is to make money, not to look after your health. And they've got increasing unchecked power over the years. Um, they fund most of university research now. That didn't used to be the case in the 1990s. We know from different analyses that most published research is not high quality. And then what they do is, and we've got his, historical evidence of this, I'm not going to name any drug companies, but most of the top 10 certainly have been found guilty in the last couple of decades of quite significant fraud. Um, but the other aspect that most people don't know about is when they've been found guilty of fraud, one is they've ended up making more money anyway by its cost of business, by the marketing of the product than the fines, right? So they're actually, you know, it, it, for them, it's it's worth taking that risk. And then even when the fraud has been very blatant involving senior um, scientists or um, uh, executives within those industries, none of them got fired. And they didn't face any retribution, any fines, that kind of thing, because the the law protects them. They've got liability against harm. So the so this is the um, the other problem. So I would say, in a way, and this is for a broader discussion, the economic system we're in is actually the biggest driver of societal problems and health problems and the problem with that matt is we don't live in cocoons so even if some people are very highly educated and very resourced we all rely on each other we see that for example the nhs is failing we rely on an nhs and it doesn't matter how wealthy you are if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time suffer cardiac arrest so chances are you're not going to survive at the moment because the ambulance won't get to you in time so we're all dependent on each other and therefore and also an unhealthy society is an economically unproductive one so I think it takes it may take a bit of boldness from people, for example, within who are currently financially benefiting from the current system to realize in the longer term, medium to longer term, this is actually going to be more harmful to us. So we have to change the economic system. And I'm talking about doing that through democratic process. So we're actually having an informed discussion with people for people understanding the system failures and saying, hold on a minute. Why is it that drug companies they do their own, uh, they sponsor their own research, they then hide the data, the raw data, and then they pay the regulator to then evaluate their own drugs that are then distributed amongst the population. Any reasonable, rational human being I've spoken to, including patients, when they hear about this, one, they didn't know this is a situation, and then they think this is outrageous. So I, I'm a, you know, I believe in true democracy. Let's have a debate about how we can improve the system. And, and there are lots of ways that we can do that. But it's only going to happen when people understand the problems in the system in the first place. And just to paraphrase um, the American economist Noam Chomsky, he says the general population, and I would add, and doctors don't know what's happening and they don't even know that they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And that, that would explain why we are where we are, where we are right now. It's not, there are some doctors that may have an inkling of what's going on that are choosing to ignore it, but the vast majority aren't aware that what they're doing is causing any problems, like you say. Yeah, I think, the, listen, the vast majority of doctors in this country, uh, I believe me, are there because they want to do best for their patients. But the problem is that a lot of their clinical decision making is coming from biased and corrupted research. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that if you're making clinical decisions on research that's poor quality or biased, 
you're not going to get the best outcomes for your patients and or you may do significant harm. And that, you know, trying to explain the, the, the situation that we're in right now with our public health crisis, with our economic crisis, requires going to the causes of the causes, going to the real root of this problem. And just to simplify it, um, I interviewed a few years ago the former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the highest impact medical journal in the world, Marcia Angel. And she summarizes it very nicely. She said the real battle in healthcare that we have is one between, uh, one between truth versus money. Yeah, nothing to do with health, <laughs> essentially. And I think, I think naively, we don't, as a population, we potentially don't want to think that they think like that because then it would, you know, it instills a whole nother level of fear that actually, hold on a minute, you know, I'm being attacked from all angles here with regards to what I eat and my lifestyle choices. Because we're actively encouraged sometimes to not be the healthiest of, you know, when you look at advertising and, uh, and, and like you say, how difficult it is to eat healthy. It's cheaper to buy bad food than it is to buy good food. So that's, you know, it's all, it's it's set up from the get-go to go against Absolutely. it. Absolutely. What, just bouncing back briefly then, so just real quick. So what, you said you're, you're, you're an activist, which I think is brilliant. Um, what what kind of instilled that? Were you, were, you, were you a cardiologist, consultant cardiologist before you became an activist or did it come, you know, afterwards? It's a good question, actually. Yeah. Um, it, it's a good question because I remember when I started some of this activism, I was told, Asim, wait till you become a consultant. But I thought to myself, hold on a, a minute. There's never, um, there's always a right time to do the right thing. There's never a wrong time, if you like, to do the right thing. And of course, if you do that, if you think, hold on a minute, wait until I become more senior or whatever and have a, a more eminence, if you like, then I think you're compromising on the principles of uh, of being honest and open and transparent and, and having the courage to speak out. So for me, uh, I started, you know, it's interesting. I probably started um, as an activist. Uh, I think that the biggest um, high profile uh, uh, article, the first one that I wrote, I was a junior doctor then, uh, was published in February 2011. And it was for the Observer newspaper. And I couldn't predict they were going to put it on the front page of their commentary section, which is, you know, very well read amongst influencers anyway. Um, and it was entitled, it was around the fact that I had noticed, you know, we're trying to tackle this obesity problem since 2004. It was announced by the WHO as a global problem. And uh, I noticed that we were basically, our hospitals were a branding opportunity for junk food industry. You know, patients being served burger and chips, they've come in with heart attacks, junk food pretty much everywhere in the hospital. So I thought, well, we should start in our own backyard. Um, we should at least set the example. And I wrote this piece saying, um, they, you know, as it works with a lot of these articles, you write the text, but the editor ultimately decides on the title. And the title was, I mend hearts, then I see our hospital serve junk food to my patients. And that's where it really started for me. And it, it came off the back of a few months earlier, I had met Jamie Oliver, I'd emailed him because I said, you know, I was really inspired by his campaign to tackle um, school food and make it healthier because of the problem of child obesity, which is still a major issue. Mm -hmm. And I said, can you come and sort our hostel food, mate, basically, um, you know? And, uh, you know, we met up, um, we had a dinner with a few doctors and great guy, really, really, um, my, every impression I've had of him when I've met him is really sincere, really sincere bloke, very smart. Um, really committed to the cause. Um, and what you see actually on TV is pretty much what he's like in real life. And uh, and and he wasn't able to get involved in the campaign at that stage because he had quite a few projects on, but he was able to support me and he gave a quote for the article in The Observer. And that's how it took off for me. And then I went down my own investigation, if you like, from a, uh, a scientific perspective, but also, you know, a lot of what informs my 
practice and my knowledge, Matt, is my patients. I mean, they are my primary motivating inspiration. Um, so it was combining my own experience with patients with what the independent research would show. For example, you know, I was one of the lead campaigners that made the, um, you know, raised awareness around the harmful effects of sugar. I did my own investigation into that and started publishing the BMJ. Um, so that's really where my activism started. But then once you go down that route, you want to dig further and further and further and really get to the root causes and understanding all the structural drivers of policies and, and actually ultimately uh the other thing that's really interesting as well which has become a bit more challenging as you know in recent times is that the mainstream media still uh has one of the biggest impact if not the biggest impact on shaping public opinion on things on issues um and uh and i had opportunities and i've done a lot of work with the bbc for example i did a i was asked to do a report um this is not paid for by the way none of my media work is paid for just so just to make people understand this is purely doing the right thing it's not motivated by money of course we all want we need money to pay the mortgage but for me my activism doesn't really you know generate any any income for me it's because it's the right thing to do um and it's time consuming but i did a report for bbc newsnight and uh, as and they and they again pitched me as the angry cardiologist that was asking just before the olympic games in the summer of 2012 in london why were our main sponsors mcdonald's coca-cola cadbury's and heineken in the middle of an obesity epidemic so uh, that, again, you know, gave me a bit more of a profile. Um, and then I started working with uh, policymakers, with the medical colleges on, on various projects. One of them was around the fact that, you know, too much medicine, um, which is a big threat to public health, you know, estimated to prescribe medications, estimated to be the third most common cause of death because of side effects uh, after heart disease and cancer by one re reputed researcher. Um, and then I got involved and, and the too much medicine campaign was started by the BMJ. So I, I wanted to help um, catalyze or bring the attention of that campaign to mainstream media. So I did lots of work, you know, through medical journal publications and collaborating with other reputed uh, doctors as well to try and make sure this became a, a priority in terms of public health policy. Uh, and I've been doing that for years. Um, in fact, I would say there's probably three major mainstream media attempts, two definite big ones, and one which was for an article in The Guardian where I've called for an inquiry on the scale of um, the, the Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war around the uh, medical research, clinical intervention interface, if you like, that basically the pharmaceutical industry has corrupted a lot of the research, but also many scientists themselves, because of that unchecked power, are engaging in practices which are not ethical. So you know, um, uh, producing fraudulent research, for example, um, because they're more likely to get money from the drug industry to their institution, they're going to get promoted. So these are really, really big issues. If anyone wants to read a summary of it, I, I asked them just to look up one article I wrote in The Guardian 2017 called uh, Finance Trump's Patients um, in the NHS. Um, and uh, if you just Google that and, and read the article, that kind of summarizes these major problems. And I think a lot of people would be astounded and shocked probably you know, when they read the article, just you know how I summarize the, the problem. And unfortunately, Matt, I don't think that problem has gone away. Nothing has been done to improve those structures or system failures. And uh, I think until we do that and attack it at the root, it's still gonna continue. Oh, where have you been all my life? Honestly, where have you been all my life? It's 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 comforting to know that that there, and I think the, the general public need to know this. And I've tried to hammer this home before. There are some of us that are in the system that have not been 
very happy with it and trying to swim against the tide and everything else. But when you're swimming against a tsunami, it's um, it's very difficult to kind of get your voice out there without being brandished um, a general pain. Yeah, and Matt, and also you talk about whistleblowers. It's not easy, right? So a lot of doing this sort of work is in effect being a whistleblower within the NHS. And uh, it's not whistleblowers don't usually succeed hmm. in the sense that they are, and I, I, you know, I won't go into any details, I've had my fair share of... Uh, people trying to undermine my credibility or threaten my career over the years. Uh, eventually, I'll probably write a book about it. But it's been relentless at times. And all and other people, forget about me for a second, you read about other stories of other doctors, all those people are trying to do is actually give the best quality care to their patients. And that's the saddest aspect of all of this. Um, there is a, uh, a whistleblower that was involved in exposing that one of the drugs that we use for many years in the NHS called Alteplase, a, a, a clot-busting drug, he exposed research, really looking at the totality of evidence, even went up to the, the drug regulator that suggested that the drug may not be very effective at all and was unnecessarily causing brain bleeds in many people. And he gave me this great line, which I've used as well. I've taken it from him with his permission, which is uh, honest doctors can no longer practice honest medicine. That's how bad the situation is. Yeah. And have you noticed any parallels from the, the, the activist work that you've been doing initially 2011, obesity and, and the food side of things uh, in, in, in the COVID narrative that's being pushed today? It's a great question, uh, Matt. I think one thing I would say at the beginning is that um, we didn't really, we weren't very effective around public health messaging of tackling diet-related disease and obesity in the middle of the pandemic. So we knew quite early on, and I published on this and highlighted the fact that once you exclude the elderly, most of the poor outcomes from COVID were being driven by conditions related to excess body fat. The research also tells us uh, that you can reverse or improve many of these risk factors within a few weeks of just purely changing diet. And that message wasn't conveyed when it should have been. And one of the reasons for that, I think, is that the narrative was really um let's put it this way to 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 succeed in that narrative it would have been really threatening the interests of the food industry and the food industry have a lot of influence and power um just to give you one anecdotal example um a very senior person within public health england in terms of nutrition in terms of their guidance when i had a conversation with them when i met them for coffee and asked them why for example even pre-pandemic um, does the NHS eat well guide, which you can see and see in many canteens of, uh, across hospitals in the UK, um, have junk food on there in the corner. So they've got, um, I think, cakes, packet of crisps, sugary drinks, whatever, right? So why is that there even on that eat well plate, eat well guide? It should not be in there. And, and the message under it is eat less often and in small amounts, not like avoid it altogether. I'm not saying people can't have treats, but in terms of what, what constitutes healthy eating, right? That is definitely not part of it. You know, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, nothing against people having occasional treats, mate, at all. But when you look at the gold standard, what, rec what is healthy eating? Why is that even on that eat well guide? And this person said to me, who is there to represent public health and patients, said, Asim, you've got to understand one of the biggest contributors to our economy is the food industry. That was our answer. So, so, so what we've got really is a form of collusion between people who are supposed to be representing or promoting scientific integrity and patient interests, such as medical journals, academics, uh, institutions. They collude with industry for 
ultimately for financial gain. And that that is at the heart of the problem. Um, and we need to disconnect those relationships. Doesn't mean we don't need industry, we don't need food, but, but it's about it's about shifting the balance so that one, we create a, a food system that encourages production of healthier foods, for example, but also we shouldn't be deceiving people, misleading them by um, suggesting that these sorts of foods are very much part of your healthy eating plan. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's like the tobacco industry when they just unbranded the, t- the cigarette packets and stopped selling them in tens. It's not really doing much to stop the, the thing that, you know, the, 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 the tobacco industry, but it's, it's enough to keep the people that are giving them grief quiet for, for a little while. You know, it's not going to stop that many people from smoking because they know what brand they get. They just ask for it. Having it not displayed in a, 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 you know, is all the same color just makes it harder for the cashier to get you the right cigarettes, I've, uh, I've been told. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like doing the bare minimum to keep everyone quiet, but not really affecting them uh, or their pockets. So it's, it's Yeah, it's although tobacco, you see what they did, uh, Matt, in these situations, because tobacco consumption dropped in a lot of these Western countries, they just moved to developing countries. And the same problems we're seeing in developing countries now, we, we were suffering from 20, 30, 40 years ago. So that's what they do, these multinational corporations, is that even whatever country gets it right, or at least you know, has a more honest health policy, they will go and you know, market their products in other countries where there's less regulation and less education. I mean, I could talk to you for ages and I'm really conscious of your time and I must get you back on because I want to talk to you about the the, the preventative side of, of, of health and everything as well, because I've been desperately trying to get somebody on to talk about that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I think you'd be brilliant at that as well. But just a couple more questions before before you shoot off. Then. Sure. Um, so what can we do? As the general public, what can we do? Um, or what would your, would your advice be to people watching this now thinking, okay, well, I'm prepared to do some lifestyle changes and things like that with regards to this? You know, what, what would your kind of top sort of five things be to, to, to give people advice to go away with and at least start trying to change their lifestyle? Yeah, sure. So I'd say first and foremost, from a lifestyle perspective, I think the single biggest factor that people need to understand is the hierarchy, certainly at the moment, of what adversely affects your health. Adversely affects your health is poor diet. What does that mean? What I tell my patients, some very simple rules of thumb, mate. Um, the two biggest drivers of poor health, whether you're obese or whether you're slim, actually, is because the, you know a poor diet can actually have an adverse effect on your health, even if you haven't got excess body fat, if you're not getting the right nutrients, not getting enough omega-3 fiber, for example. So um, is ultra-processed food and what we call low-quality carbohydrates. So I would say if you decided that you want to today do something quite drastic and dramatic, I would say for a month, is what I tell my patients, just do it for a month because you'll see big changes. Quit ultra-processed food. What is ultra-processed food? Anything that comes in a packet, usually if you can count five or more ingredients, uh, often with additives and preservatives, right? And that even includes, for example, brown bread from the supermarket. That's a classic one where people think, hold on, that's healthy. No, ultra-processed. It's going to interfere with the appetite control mechanisms. It's going to have adverse effects on hormones that are going to really be related to weight gain and linked to diseases like type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure and heart disease. So eliminate ultra processed foods. Anything that comes in a packet, five or more ingredients, don't eat it. And the other one, if you can, is eliminate or certainly minimize is low quality carbs. So these are basically carbohydrates that lack fiber, specifically bread, including brown bread, because it doesn't have much fiber, actually. Um, People think it has a lot of fiber. It doesn't have that much fiber. Um, pasta, rice, potatoes, eliminate those sugary drinks, juices, ultra processed food. If you do that and do that for a month, 
the good news is one is you won't have to count calories. So you eat till you're full and the weight for a lot of people and their risks for the disease or whatever, for many people will massively improve dramatically. They'll probably feel better mentally as well. One of my, a lot of my patients come back and say, actually not just, they haven't just lost weight, they're feeling mentally better. So that's one thing to do. I think the other thing is the basics around exercise. You can't outrun a bad diet. You don't need to be pounding in the gym. And if, you ha if you're someone that's sedentary, just doing 30 minutes of a, of a walk every day, uh, that's all you need to do. Go outside. It doesn't cost you any money to do that. That's all you really need to do for exercise. Just, just keep moving. Don't be sitting on the couch for hours and hours on end. That's what I would say from an exercise point of view. Um, I think the other things to think about really is stress. It's a bit harder to deal with, especially if you're in a, a low control, low pay, high demand job. It's going to be very, very stressful. Um, but if you can, just try and do things that, you know, are, are going to help reduce the stress. Now, for some people, it might be exercise. For other people, it'd be a form of meditation, deep breathing for 10 to 20 minutes a day. You can look up apps. There's one called Calm. You can download that uh, on your iPhone or whatever phone you've got. It's a really good one to coach you through meditation. Do that every day. Um, yeah, and the other thing, I think people just have to have a bit more courage to speak out and do a little bit more critical thinking. Uh, I think the problem at the moment is that um, the information that's coming through mainstream media for a lot of people right now, and this needs to change because I want us to trust mainstream media better, is biased and corrupted. So I'd ask them just to do a little bit more reading around topics. Um, it's not, again, easy because Facebook and other social media platforms as well are um, you know, uh, dismissing a lot of true independent science as saying it's spreading misinformation. And one of the reasons for that, and as I won't elaborate too much on it now, is that the people that Facebook have partnered with to decide what's true and what's false are actually people that are benefiting from that information financially. For example, uh, one specific drug company, people can look it up and see who Facebook have partnered with to decide on uh, what's um, uh, legitimate information when it comes to drugs or even vaccines or whatever. So that's just something people need to understand and think about a little bit more. But we need to change those. I'm working behind the scenes as well to try and um, hopefully make people aware uh, at policy level of what's really going on. Because many of these policymakers, politicians, they don't have a clue either, Matt. They're just like the general public. They get a lot of their information that influences their policymaking and their health decisions from the mainstream media. You know, And the mainstream media, certainly in America and a bit more here, are being influenced massively by big corporations that are there to sell you products that, are, that may be detrimental to your health. So a lot of people don't know that. So it's really important for us to think a little bit more critically, but certainly my simple lifestyle advice, I think is relatively non-controversial for people. That's what I'd ask them to do. Yeah, it, it, the odds are stacked up against us really, aren't they? I think more, more so than people realize it, they are really making it hard for us to just try to be healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's no money in us being healthy because then we won't need any medications. I or think that, yeah, well, I think there would be potentially money in us being healthy, but it, you know, I think again, I've got no problem with people making money doing the right thing. I've got a problem with people making money doing the wrong thing. So it's about creating, you know, um, financial incentives, if you like, for people to do the right thing um, that benefits all of society. And, and also, you know, this is another philosophical question, but, you know, research suggests that once your basic needs are met, there's no clear correlation with how much money you earn extra and being happier. So that's, again, another societal kind of system, economic system, issue we need to think about because a lot of the money is going to the wrong place. So a lot of these corporations that essentially make money from lying to you, legalized lying, okay? A lot of these corporations are avoiding tax and, um, you know, uh, and then that tax that they're avoiding paying could be put in the public health system, which is then being reduced for austerity. And it becomes a vicious cycle that's ultimately detrimental to everybody. 
So if we improve the economic system by people being paid for doing the right thing, you know, Adam Smith is one of the, the, the brainchilds behind the, the free market economic system that we've got, actually said markets function best. So I'm, just, I'm not an economist, but you know, I've spoken to many senior economists who said this is true. Markets function best on perfect information and relative equality. So we've got, we've got neither perfect information, we've got far from it, we've got the opposite quite often in terms of what people are buying, products or foods or drugs or whatever else. And then you've got um, massive inequality in the sense that we've got big social or economic inequalities in society. We've got, you know, certainly the US and the UK, many European countries, it's going that direction, bigger gaps between the rich and the poor. You're economically less productive. But even within a company, Matt, really interesting. If you've got a big pay differential between um, the CEO of a company and the production worker, uh, and actually for many big corporations now around the world, big companies, that pay differential, mate, is around 300 times. So the CEO of the company is earning 300 times more than the production worker, which many people will think is outrageous, right? The bigger the gap, the less productive that company is. Yeah. So we could actually improve the economic system just by looking at the evidence and the science and, and, and I think also helping and persuading some of these big CEOs of these companies that it's in their interest to help improve the system that benefits everybody, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of change that needs to happen from the ground up as well, isn't there? I think that's that's the challenge, is just knowing where to start. Yeah. Listen, we have more power than we realize. Citizens, not consumers. We have we, we ultimately the reason they're able to get away with it. Look at, for example, doctors are ultimately stewards around what drugs are prescribed. If doctors were more better better informed about those drugs and the reliability of them, the drug industry wouldn't be able to get away with um, what they're doing at the moment, which is, you know, their business model is to basically get more people and more drugs. And uh, um, it doesn't mean we don't need drugs and that drugs don't have a role. Of course they do. But this is about the, their excesses and manipulations that ultimately cause so much harm to people. Um, but people need to understand that their business model and their power is driven purely by getting more people in the population, taking more drugs. And that's how they make money. And I think any, any rational person knows that good health doesn't come out of a medicine bowl. No, and we're definitely starting to see that more more. Um, well, the last couple of years, we're definitely starting to see that. <coughs> Excuse me. Last question, then, because I, I just wanted to get that. So where, where are you going from now? What are your plans in the future? With regards well, to I just carry on doing what I'm doing, Matt. Same sort of stuff. Um, making the injustice visible, to quote Mahatma Gandhi. We need a revolution. So we carry on. Yes, we um, do. You know, I, I uh, collaborate with people. I have conversations. It's about... Uh, dialogue with people that normally you wouldn't necessarily be on the same side with politically. I think that many of us have been living in echo chambers for a long time and it is not working. You see big divisions and hostility in America. We've seen, for example, people who are Democrat supporters versus people who are Republican. And actually what you decide to do or what you support ultimately is being driven more about what the Democrat Party is saying, what the Republican Party is saying, rather than what the truth is saying. So we need to have conversations with each other. Um, one of my inspiration, inspirational philosophers, Socrates says, true wisdom comes from dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, that means also having, exercising more compassion with other people that may have a different view to you and trying to understand why they think the way they think. We all ultimately want the same thing. We want the best health and happiness for ourselves and our families. Yeah. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Um, and I will continue most of a lot of my work and my advocacy comes through power of the pen, through my writing. 
um, and, and through giving lectures um, and speaking to policymakers and members of the public as well. So it's really bringing everyone together. So I'll yeah. just keep, I'll keep fighting the good fight. Please don't stop, all right? Because we all we all need we all need to be working together. I've been speaking to some brilliant people um, since doing this podcast, and it's it's opened my eyes to a lot of things. But it's it's I think it's um it's it's about like you say the the general public have had the power all along, but it's just a, a, getting them to the point where they realise that. Um, yeah, and galvanising it and realising yeah. yeah, ultimately the power is with us. Yeah, but you know, um, one of the ways corporations exert their power is by keeping conflict between those whom overpower is exerted um the interests of those who whom overpower is exerted and the powerful keeping it latent keeping it you know not making avoiding it being a public issue avoiding it being a mainstream issue so that's one of the ways they exert their power because they know if the truth comes out to the masses of the population then that's the end of the road for their particular model of i dare i see it you know it's unfortunate but the business model of many of these big corporations is one of fraud yeah. and uh, and that business model is harming people on an unprecedented scale mentally and physically and it's time to change time to reverse it yes it is and this is what we're going to do going forward uh, it's going to take a little while but you know we're starting to make progress the conversations we're having now compared to the conversations we we're having two years ago you know we're able to talk more about things um so it's yeah it's, and i think people are waking up and i think you're right matt there is that social movement there mm -hmm. is that increasing realization i think the downside is one of the correlates of that increasing realization is a decreasing trust in government and the medical establishment to some degree um and i think we've seen that even with the vaccine rollout for example that you know i don't want to talk specifically about vaccines today but i, I think a worrying sign in many ways in reflection of lack of trust or decreasing trust is that in april the i newspaper reported that eight million people had refused to take the booster um, of the COVID vaccine. And that, in a way, is a reflection of decreasing trust, even though the the medical authorities or public authorities were advising, persuading, coercing them into taking it, they refused. So that, for me, is a marker of decreasing trust. And we don't want to be in that situation. We need to improve the trust again. Yeah, yeah, because there, there are some um, interventions and vaccines that are actually, you know, they do what they say. You could argue oh, something. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I've you know. got, you know, I've, I'm, uh, I'm a big, you know, vaccines, traditional vaccines, uh, Matt, are uh, estimated to be responsible for saving about four to five million lives per year globally. Um, I've got several scars on my left arm um, that remind me of the, uh, of the, the, um, the wonders of, of medical advances, certainly in the second half of the 20th century, whether it was MMR, smallpox, TB. Um, you know, of, of the benefits of vaccines. So I'm very pro-vaccine uh, in general, traditional vaccines. Um, but there has been, again, a worrying signs now of a reduced uptake of MMR for the first time in 10 years, at its lowest point. Yeah. And again, that reflects, for me, I think, decreasing trust, and that's not good. So no. th there are ways I'm working on something. How can we restore that trust? And uh, I think we can restore it through better transparency and having more open and honest conversations with the public and patients uh, how the uh, how when the evidence changes, we need to change with that evidence. And one very simple example at the beginning, we thought that this vaccine was going to have a massive impact on pre preventing infection and transmission, and we know that isn't the case anymore because many people have been infected. Even if it's preventing serious illness and death, which does have some validity, um, although we need to know in absolute terms what that is for individuals. So I think a lot of people thought, hold on a minute, we were told at the very beginning this was going to prevent us being infected. 
and now I've had the vaccine and I've got infected. And no one's had a proper discussion, I think, with the public about why that evidence has changed or what happened at the beginning and what's at the roots of this. Mm. And I think if we do have that honest conversation, we will restore trust much more quickly. Yeah. Yeah, we will. And it's it takes people like yourself to speaking out and then um, hopefully we can, you can know, start the ball rolling really where people will start asking the right questions. I think there's a two year lead time. I had this conversation with someone the other day. We're just starting to talk about the injuries now, two years after everything's rolling out. So maybe in another two years, we'll start talking about everything else. But yeah, I'm hoping it'd be a lot quicker than that. Maybe, yeah, but yeah, yeah I'm just going to say, I hope got, yeah. Um, well, listen, doctor, where can everybody find you? Sure. So uh, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter. There's Dr. Asim Hotra. Facebook, again, under my name. Uh, Instagram, I use, uh, it's called Lifestyle Medicine Doctor, one word. Uh, so that's really where I do most of my social media posts. And um, yeah, that's where they can find me. Well, listen, if there's anything I can do with getting the message out to people, you're more than welcome to come on here again. Obviously, uh, I'd like to talk to you again as well, because there's so much we, we didn't get a chance to discuss. But I appreciate time is precious. I'll let you bounce. All right. Thank you for your time today, Doctor. I really do appreciate it. And keep up the good fight. And please don't stop. All right. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. No worries. You take care. All right. All the best. All the best.